Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, this is a conversation uh, which I was absolutely honored to be a part of. Uh, went, it, it, you know, there's a lot of it. So I decided to uh, cut it into two parts since it's real long for one of our typical podcasts. And the second part, which you'll have to wait until next week to hear, uh, it's 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 really good. Um, he talks about, um, yeah, when, when he talks about his own health and uh, being in what he says is, you know, kind of the last leg of his life, uh, it is pretty special stuff. So that's next week. That was a terror. Like, I'm sorry I said that because this one you're listening to now, really good as well. But um, here we are from Albuquerque, New Mexico at the Center for Action and Contemplation, Father Richard Rohr. I look down and see someone didn't take any notes. I'm like, well, you did in your book come interesting. On, come on. <laughs> I remember when I was with Oprah. That's what most flattered me. She had every page. She is a reader. Yeah. And she highlights and marks it up. Every page marked up. That's outstanding. Yeah. Um, we good? Yeah, I mean, okay. I think so. And that microphone? Yeah, switch to an off Just headphones if you're listening that way. But I think we should be. All right, we're ready. I think so. So your role is going to be what, Jason? I'm I'm a road manager here. Road manager. He, okay. I, I, Luke's, Luke's driving this. All right. We should let him talk a little bit. Right? Whatever you. I think we should. What you do you know. think? You've you've heard. You've talked to him for a few minutes now. Do you think he's got something to say? Well, he's very bright, obviously, mm-hmm. and very warm. So. I would trust him, yes. Okay. Yeah. That Notre Dame degree, is kind of, he's kind of like a hybrid. It's really, yeah. He's not fully like an evangelical, <laughs> but he's not fully Catholic. Catholic, he's kinda, somewhere in between. <laughs> That's like, like half of our staff here, yeah. Why, why, why do you end up with so many people like like us who are kind of evangelical, but we're just not there f- like 100% now? We, we want something different? Because you have a massive following yeah. of... Oh, wherever I go. In fact, one publisher says it's my single biggest demographic is evangelicals and post-evangelicals. I think, for one thing, they know I love Scripture. Mm -hmm. And when I do critique the Protestant tradition in general, evangelicalism in particular, I hope I do it in a very fair way with things that they can say, yeah, that's our weak point, you know what I mean? And they see that I criticize Catholic equally, yeah, (laughs) if not even more. In the new book, you definitely, you're equal opportunity offender. Uh, And and I think you're tapping into something that evangelicals know, like there's there's an aspect to our spiritual experience that's dry, that's missing something, and I feel like you're kind of giving us language for something that we've experienced, but we don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And you're also an Enneagram guy, and that that seems to have blown up in the evangelical world. Yeah, have you noticed that? No, I haven't. Oh, oh it's it's all everywhere. of our staff knows it, but I thought they learned it here, huh? No, like everywhere. Uh, Suzanne Stabile. Oh yes, is big in Dallas. Yeah, yeah. she's one of my good friends. We're actually oh. just together in in Austin, and people. Just like we had an event at our church, and yes. we had hundreds of young millennials just show up to hear Suzanne and a handful of us talk about the Enneagram. Wow. And so that's, this is a surprise to you. I knew it was growing, but I guess I didn't realize it was growing in evangelicalism. That's interesting and good. 
Yeah. Very good. Because, you know, your older tradition, let me just put it that way, wasn't known for self-knowledge. It didn't encourage Mm -hmm. self-knowledge, it seemed to me. So for you to be doing that is a wonderful sign. Yeah. The Enneagram is rather subversive, as you know. It, It gets people who have no interest in their inner life suddenly interested in it mm-hmm. uh, because it's just so true the anagram yes that's exactly what it, it is it's just oh my god they've just nailed it they've told me who i am mm-hmm. yeah i've heard story multiple stories like this where someone who's not really interested in it their spouse gets them involved yes. the partner says you need to check this out and then they start weeping and they go yes. i'm not the only one yes um it, Hundred times, I'm I've sh- yeah, I'm sure had you've that seen experience that over and over again. Uh, so, in, in your perspective, you haven't noticed this sort of growth of the enneagram. You know, part of the re- I don't teach the enneagram much anymore. My work is more theology, spirituality, mm-hmm. and uh, I still love it that the enneagram has led so many people to read my other books. Uh-huh. So it's a good gateway. It's a gateway drug. <laughs> it's a gateway, gateway yeah. drug, yeah. Uh-huh. It really is, especially for males, because men avoid self-knowledge. You know, if you have a little course on your feelings or something like that, men don't show up. No. But they they realize, my God, that just named me. They yeah. can't deny the truth of it. Yeah. And so suddenly they are interested in the whole schema. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so this is... Adam's Return? Is that the book on male spirituality? Yeah, one of them, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, so obviously we're not talking about that book today, but you said men don't deal with their feelings well. No, not at all. Give me, give me the uh, snapshot of why do you think that's that happens over and over again with us men. Now, you know, the historical biological reason, and it makes sense to me if this is true, is that for most of human history, the male had to be a warrior. Mm-hmm. It was a defensive, offensive world. And so if you're going to go out and fight, I mean, now what we call PTSD, I'll bet half the men in history had it, really. You know, when you saw your parents slaughtered, I mean, read Western history. It's just century after century of invasions, every European country. So... If that's true, the male of the species learned to be much more boundaried and much more defended, which is the opposite of being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas women learn vulnerability from their children, from breastfeeding, from uh, menstruation. The whole thing didn't encourage them to live a, what I call a defended life. But we just did. It's in our genes now. That's probably too strong a statement. I don't know anything about genes. But <laughs> but uh, you just see the male is consistently uh, boundaried, overprotective of himself. And, yeah. But he had to do it. Once you re- name it as a virtue, he originally did that to protect his wife and his children. You know. Yeah. But when you're on the defensive every day... Over millennia, it created a different male species, it seems. Yeah. It seems. That's all I can say. I'm not smart enough to know if that's really the explanation. Well, but it makes sense. I'll, yeah. I'll go with that. Yeah. That makes sense yeah, to me. Yeah, it does. And, okay, so the Enneagram helps us to do the inner work that otherwise we would 
let just remain dormant. We wouldn't access it. Mm. We wouldn't leave it there. And uh, I, was it Merton who said uh, to be a saint is to be your truest self? That if if you want to follow where like God has taken you, you become in touch with everything of who you are. And you, you've got a line in the book somewhere. Sure. That uh, if you... Okay, oh, here it is. Here it is. <laughs> this is from your new book. Um, when you discover your soul, you discover God. They're the same discovery yeah. at the deeper level. It, it's not just, oh, I've discovered that I'm a guitar player. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about your soul. Your deepest, truest, objective self. And you almost have to move beyond... Uh, cultural judgments of what's great and what isn't great uh, because they'll screw you up every time it's who you really are you know and our whole education and careerism has kept us from that because we're we're educated in what to do to get a job Uh, that's why i think so many people in our culture excuse me don't even find themselves till after retirement they finally, you know, like even George Bush, he does art painting after yeah. he was president. And he says he's totally happy just painting. Mm. Wow. That's, a, that's pretty special. Yeah, it's like our personality, like this mask that we wear, has been used to perpetuate where we need to get in the world in the same way that... Well put, yes. That the, the warrior has put their feelings as a dormant facet of who they are. To get them going in the same way, like your personality, like it gets you your career, whatever you know, personality. Maybe George W is maybe a six, I think Suzanne said six, he's yes. a six, and so yes. his sixness got him to all exactly. where he was, exactly. But eventually, he had to let go of that, let go of that, and then now he's almost looks like a four, you know. I don't know what he is now, yeah, fascinating. Normally, we don't change, yeah. Darn, I was, what was I gonna say? You were saying something good there. Well, you were, you were so ahead. taken back by that, like, oh, this is good. This is good. But you, our personality keeps us going, but eventually, like, spiritual work is to get <clears throat> underneath that. That's what I'm talking about in that book, uh, Falling Upward, mm-hmm. that you spend the first half of your life creating your persona. Mm-hmm. And then you're so invested in it, really, you don't know how to let go of it. You yeah. don't know how to, because it's become you, even when it's killing you. I'm yeah. not talking to you two, but people <laughs> in much of the world, you can tell they're not happy. Why do they need to drug themselves with alcohol every night? You know, you know there's some huge denial of depth or self or truth or love or God. Uh, and they're not bad people either. They just, they're survivors. Most people are survivors. Yeah. Yeah. And once you know that, you don't need to hate them or look down on them. You, you do feel sorry that, that they're so unhappy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. I, someone from my uh, congregation just brought, he, he walked into a lunch we were having and he has two books. And one of them was my copy of Falling Upward. And I was like, oh. first of all, I've been looking for that. Thank you for bringing it back. <laughs> but it's one of those books that I tell people, go buy this, go buy this. You, this is such a helpful book. Thank and you. we could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah. But that's not the book that came out today. You've been gracious enough to be with us on the very day that the yes. new book has come out. And I don't want to make... The subtitle's not on here. The Universal Christ is the title. And the, the subtitle's pretty long. You know, the it was the publishers who created the subtitle. Open it up. I created the Universal Christ. I insisted on that, and then they... How a forgotten reality can change everything we see, hope for, 
and believe. Yeah, yeah. When I was here last, <clears throat> I, I guess it was three, three and a half years really? ago. Really? That's what I think. Here it seems so much shorter. Yeah. Okay. But again, <clears throat> uh, finally glad that I have an excuse to come back and do another me interview. Too, me um, too, But you had told me that this is a book that you wanted to write. Did I say that you, then? You said you'd like to if you were able to. And I was like, I, I, I really need you. Oh. I would love for you to finish this book. And you did. And so I'm... Wow. You know, you're just telling me something. I didn't know three years ago I was already saying that. Because I do feel this is the last book I had to write. Yeah. Maybe the first book I had to write. I don't know. What do you mean you had to? That it, Forgive me, this sounds so pretentious. But it was like my destiny that everything else built up to writing this. I, I mean, I'm proud of some of my other books. <clears throat> but if if I could offer this to the Christian world, I know it's a game changer. Yeah. And, and a game changer that's entirely scriptural and entirely traditional, but as they said, a forgotten reality. It's mm-hmm. a reality, but a, a reality that really was not taught to nine out of ten Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, if I could do that, I think Christianity could take on the shape that would make it Less exclu- well, there's no room to, for exclusion, really. <laughs> uh, what are you excluding? You know? Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm surprised you said it's your destiny because the book, like Falling Upward, has had a huge impact on so many people. Yeah, there's even a song which a, a popular like uh, worship song that uh, the artist who's been heavily influenced by you has this. Uh, Actually, has it in the the song Joe Houston wrote a song where he has the line "Upward Falling" on Hillsong really? United, and I was like, Joe, I feel like he got that backwards. Like, yeah, no, no, no. But like, so many of your other it's works have made a big impact on so many of us. No. How did you differentiate this and say this is my destiny? No, I only knew it in the last few years uh-huh. that all the rest were integrated in this one. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I didn't know that earlier. In fact, if the truth is told, it's only been in the last few months that I realized this is the one I was supposed to write. I mean, I'm happy I wrote the other ones. I really am. And they have helped so many people. Even the Trinity. I mean, this this book is a sequel to the Divine Dance, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. So I wouldn't want to separate the two of them. Maybe I don't don't know what I'm saying. I don't know. Well, I think, but I, yeah. I think you're right. Like this is a pretty substantial work, and yeah. what this conversation uh, can and and hopefully will cause people to do is to reimagine things. Reimagine. That, Thank you. That what you're and I hear this over and over again. Not just what you're saying now, but in the book that you're trying to say. This isn't some new idea that that it some isn't. guy in Albuquerque came up with. But this it is isn't. something that you've tied to not just. History, uh, people throughout church history, but also scripture as well. Yeah, um, I guess I mentioned to you before we started recording how a cardinal archbishop—I won't mention the city—but uh, who I always considered from moderate to conservative mm-hmm. called me today, had me on his radio show, and he said, "Richard, this is completely orthodox." I'm paraphrasing him, but but don't let people call you a heretic. And he's got his doctorate in church history. 
Uh, so that was very gratifying because I know he's tr- right, if mm-hmm. that doesn't sound arrogant. This is not heresy, but it's a forgotten reality. It was, as you heard me say toward the beginning of the book, much more understood and taught in the Eastern Church. Yeah. And once we separated in 1054, we basically stopped studying the Latin church and the Greek church. Mm -hmm. And we Catholics operated as if we were the only game in town, which is why the Protestant Reformation was so important, because we were breathing with one half of the lungs, you know. Uh, And... um, But the trouble is, it made Protestantism, and don't be offended by this, please, but operate in an even smaller pool. It it just wasn't the big, one holy, undivided apostolic church anymore that held together all the pieces. If you're whole identity is based in reacting against something, which, yes. like, Protestant, we're protesting. The very word. The very word reminds us that we're... Waste your our, time protesting? Yeah, let, not that most do, I'm not saying But that. that's where yeah. we started, and that's mm. kind of the trajectory we've been on. Um, so you're right, like, this is bigger, it's it's not just... Um, it's not just some guy in Albuquerque, you're trying to tie this to something yeah. bigger than that. Uh, the, uh, the subtitle, or actually the title that you were telling me that, that Bono wanted to use oh, in the yeah. book was... God loves things by becoming them. I think I say it at least three times in the book, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he said that was his favorite line. It's a good one. A line maybe similar to that that I, I really found meaningful is that uh, something to the extent of God's trump card is the incarnation. Yes. Or Christianity's trump card is the Christianity's, incarnation. Christianity's, yes. And so it's this, like this. And we haven't played it yet all the way through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, go let, ahead. Let's go ahead and flush that. What would it look like playing it all the way through? Well, you know, and I'm going to sound super Catholic now, but you know how we Catholics became obsessed, and that's not too strong, with this bread and wine Eucharist almost substituting the bread and the wine for the living presence of the risen Christ. But can you see in this frame what they were trying to do? That once we say the Christ is when spirit and matter co-inhabit one another. And it starts at the Big Bang. So first we have creation as the first incarnation, and the first Bible. I know that's not your language. That was Franciscan language. Uh, Then we have human beings created in the image and likeness of God, and we fought for that, but we'd already jumped over the first incarnation, creation. It was only limited to human beings, and God's presence just appeared 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, I want to state that in a bland way. Mm-hmm. So you, you want to say, well, that can't be true. Now that we know the universe is 13.7 billion, now I know some Christians deny that, but all the evidence is we've been around for 13.7 billion years. Mm-hmm. Now, is that entire geological period empty of God? empty of divine presence. That can't be true. So that's the eternal Christ. Mm -hmm. We used to call it the pre-existent Christ. I don't know if you use that language. No, okay, Mm -mm. doesn't matter. I like the universal Christ, which is why I use that in the book. Suddenly we have God pervading all of history, not just the earth itself, which we were allowed to think of as 
a throwaway, you know, and most Christians were trying to get away from the earth, trying yeah. to get into heaven. Yeah. So look what this has led us. I mean, we're on the edge of disaster, what we're doing to this planet. Mm-hmm. And, but that hasn't been a spiritual issue for us. Mm-hmm. All we had to do was save human beings. We tortured animals. I mean, the history of how human beings in the Christian world have treated animals, it's, it's not a book you want to read. It really just would make you want to. There was one thing I watched on TV when the white man came to the East Coast, just they watched a map or created a map of him moving across America, just slaughtering wherever he went. Animals were just for our entertainment, you know, because they weren't a part of the body of Christ, if I can use that term. The planet wasn't, the animals weren't, the trees weren't. When I first joined the Franciscans in 1961, maybe you've heard me say this, we could not cut down a tree without permission from our major superior. That's how much Francis had lasted for 800 years. You could not just go on your own and go cut it. Father, may I cut down? <laughs> and he, it, it had to be. Franciscans a, would do well in Austin, Texas, where I live. Like that. that there's a lot work. of trees. Well, that's the attitude Austin has. So oh. maybe you need to set a center up in Austin because that, that would play well where I live. Cut it down. Yeah. We don't cut anything down. Oh, oh, you're we saying don't cut the anything others. Down. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, that's why you're the. Allergy capital of the world. <laughs> You're not uh, even joking about that. I, I know. It's I terrible. gave a retreat there, and I couldn't talk all week. My eyes were just flowing. And it, was, it was one of the most horrible retreats I gave in my whole life was Austin, Texas. Not mm. because the people fought me, but the weather fought me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe we should cut some of those. Cut right. some. But, okay, but your anyway, tradition. Anyway, so we had... Now, do you see what we were doing? Mm-hmm. That the earth was sacred... The all beings were sacred. Then we took it even to the elements. Now you see that in Francis where he called sister fire, brother water. That's the intuition already. The yeah. whole thing is in the family of God. You know, so what the... I'm going back to where I started. Yeah. This Catholic obsession with seeing Jesus in bread and wine, was just being totally consistent with the Incarnation. Mm -hmm. Don't stop at humans. Now, we presented it in a very magical way, and only the priest could do the magic, and all of that waste of time. (laughs) But the the real point that God could inhabit physicality in its bare essence, that's good. So that's... Playing the trump card of incarnation. Yeah, the the evangelical part of me goes, creation is easy for me to jump to because we've got the Romans one text where since the creation of the world, God's invisibility, quality, eternal power, and divine nature have clearly seen from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So you go, okay, this, your language about the first incarnation is creation. Yes. I know for some evangelicals, the first incarnation is hard to stomach up first, but then in the book, you, you tie it to Romans 1, and you go, this is what you're doing with that. Um, and so we can go there. Then the Franciscan moved to go uh, sister... Oh, water. everything was brother and sister. Brother and yeah, sister. Yeah, yeah. So that's brother, a, son, sister, moon is the beginning of the great hymn. Yeah, that Francis wrote. I mean, that one takes us a little bit more work to. Yeah, because it sounds new agey to you, I bet. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They don't realize it was 800 years ago that we began to talk that way. (laughs) But yet we were 
a subtext, in all fairness, inside of Catholicism. You know, in many uh, Catholic history books, not many, but some, we're called the first Protestants. But we succeeded that? because we were an alternative orthodoxy. We, we tolerated the verbal orthodoxies that came forth from the papacy. Mm. We just didn't waste time trying to prove them or believe them. Or, you understand? We were sort of Catholics on the edge. Okay. Because of this connection with the earth, with animals, with creatures, mm-hmm. with nature. So a lot of the academic orders, like the Dominicans and the Jesuits, they never took us real seriously. And I can see why. We weren't the intellectuals. Mm. We were much more the the live with the poor. It was what you would call orthopraxy, if you use, not orthodoxy. And that's the whole Franciscan impulse. Mm. What are you doing with your life? You know, not... Can you define the Trinity or can you define the union of uh, Jesus with yeah. divinity and humanity? And that's what we see in even the building we're in right now, this Center for Action and Contemplation, yeah, yeah. where it, those two things are married together. It's not just what you're contemplating, but what's the action what that's are you doing? with what it. Are you, behavior, not in a moralistic way, in a solidarity way. Are you? Is your life protecting the planet, protecting the poor? Yeah, so it's not just, uh, see, if you don't, let me try it this way. If you don't create an ontological basis for holiness, Mm -hmm. that it comes with the manufacturing. uh, It has nothing to do with what group you belong to, whether you were baptized. I know that sounds heretical, but God's presence could not depend upon pouring water over somebody's head. That's a beautiful sacrament. We all enjoy it. But we've been pouring water for centuries over Europeans' heads, and it hasn't made a great deal of difference, you know. So we've got to say, what's the real basis for our union with God? It's based in creation. The problem is solved from the beginning. Now, the scripture you know I'm going to quote, I hope you know, is Ephesians 1. Mm -hmm. You were chosen in Christ before the world began. Mm -hmm. He says it three times, I think. In the beginning, from the beginning, at the beginning, the problem was solved. We didn't need a later salvation theory. Now, the fact that the life of Jesus personalized it, made it real, dramatic, drove the the lesson home, yes. But then, even after we had Jesus, most Christians aren't known for believing that they are a union of human and divine, like Jesus was. Hmm. In other words, you've heard me say this, Jesus told us to follow him, and we mostly worshipped him. He never told us to worship him. He told, <laughs> he said, so what I have done you also must do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we had to put together our humanity and our divinity just like he did. So he's the living icon. Believe me, I hope you got that from the book. I'm not diminishing Jesus by any means. In fact, if you get it, he's bigger than ever. But he's universal. And no longer would he allow you to make him German or Italian or 
Texan, if you'll offend me. Ooh, uh, if you'll allow me. I literally have a Texas flag on my hat. But you can make fun of like Italian yeah, Everything Germans, else, but, but not Texas. There's a line. Yeah. Okay, so in the beginning, so the Ephesians 1 text, in the beginning you were chosen in Christ. Uh, so from the beginning, Christ has always been there. This is always. the John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word yeah. was with God. And the Word was God. Through Him, all things that have been made were made. All right, so Jesus. Very good. Uh, I love it. You can memorize quotes. We never do that. Go yeah. ahead. Well, I don't get cool quotes. <laughs> Clothes or like you know, <laughs> you don't get to dress up. Yeah, like I don't I get to do. do that. So I, I have to just memorize the text. But so Christ is at the very beginning. From the beginning. the first incarnation is crea- creation of the world. Christ is there. I don't know the math. Thirteenth, whatever Jesus, points, whatever Jesus shows up, it, Jesus of Nazareth would be Nazareth. in the last nanosecond of the last second of geological time. And so Jesus it, shows up. And so, if Christ <laughs> was just Jesus, that means that Christ had just appeared. When we Jesus have an unsacred up. universe, to put it blandly. Mm-hmm. We have a world that's that's just a backdrop. Those mountains don't mean anything. Those oceans don't mean anything. Even the Psalms are always saying this. The rivers clap their hands, the mountains singing for joy. They were already giving glory to God from the beginning. And, you know, what was God doing? Just looking at dinosaurs, (laughs) eating grass for 9 million, 90 million years. I guess so. So then when when Jesus help me see the connection between Jesus of Nazareth his last name is not Christ That's right but Christ has always been there but Jesus has was around for 30 plus years yeah. 2000 years ago help me help me to understand Jesus in relation to the universal or the cosmic yes. Co- yeah well you know several of the sermons in Acts of the Apostles uh Jesus became, is proclaimed now as Lord and Christ. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first sermon of Peter. Um, that the, Christ is the larger universal category. Jesus personifies it, makes it interface, an I-thou relationship in a moment of time. But So he, he brings the message home to humanity. Mm-hmm. Now, because, however, we whittled him down to make him more an ethnic god, uh, an imperial god, and you've heard me talk about Mm -hmm. 313. Now, here's where we got to criticize the Catholics. Our alignment with empire in 313 is what pretty much began our non-evangelical history. You, you you can't read the Sermon on the Mount when you're the chaplains to the emperor. Do you understand? Yeah. Yep. It's the same thing we have in America now. We have to pretend to be Christian, but <laughs> you can't really take Jesus' teaching seriously and, and be elected to public office in either party and do it seriously. It's not a partisan statement. So uh, we aligned with empire. We whittle Jesus down to be the chaplain to the empire. You know, if you go to England, he looks English. You go to Germany, he looks German. You've heard me say that. It, it's no longer Jesus, the Savior of the world. He's a tiny little ethnic God, which is, you know, I, I hope this doesn't appear anti-Jewish, but I do think that's what Jesus was critiquing in his own Jewish religion, that it was too attached to tribe. 
and why he paid no attention to circumcision. That's the covenant. For him to criticize, or Paul to criticize circumcision, would be, I say that, for me to criticize baptism, as I just did, I guess. <laughs> it, um, it's nice, but it's not essential, do you see? Mm. Now, once you, you make the Jewish rite of passage into manhood being male circumcision, you've created an ethnic religion. And, and here's why I love Paul so much, that Paul, who loved his Jewish background just as Jesus did, said, you get it right this far, and then you totally miss the point. Mm-hmm. And that critique and you've heard me long enough, I'd say about Roman Catholicism, you got it right this far, and then you really, once you align with power and money and war and self-importance and ego, you're dead in the water with the gospel. And I'd say the same about evangelicalism. Your roots are really good. Uh, like your love of Scripture. My gosh, that's wonderful. But you know, when you start, and I love Martin Luther, I identify with Martin Luther, but sola scriptura, Scripture alone, that is a recipe for dualistic thinking. Yeah, it's just, a little short-sighted. It just sets you up for a bandwidth of authority that's about that narrow. You know, you can't look at nature. You can't look at science. You can't look at philosophy. Um, you get pigeonholed. And that was the good thing that I got from Catholicism, that we loved the tradition and the scriptures, but we knew those had to be understood through the lens of experience. Yeah. So you are an equal uh, opportunity offender. You've I offend am critic Judaism, of all. Roman Catholicism, <laughs> and evangelicals. You, you've got everyone. So, uh, truly, <laughs> but I don't want to stop there. You know that. No. I don't want to be a critic. No. Yeah. But, yeah. And yeah. obviously you're not just, de- you've had the line there. You're not just trying to deconstruct. No, you're, you're no. You're constructing something. You're we've, reconstructing something. We've wasted 500 years on deconstruction. Yeah. And, and that's not what you're doing in this No, point. we don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. What you're helping us do is to see, see God in all things. Thank you. And so we see God in everything. And uh, I think you have the Merton quote that everywhere is uh, a gate to heaven. The gate of heaven is everywhere. There it is. Yeah, that's, that's way better than what I was doing. And so helping to see God in, in everything. Yes. And so you, you have... No exceptions. No exceptions. Even suffering. And that's the message of the cross. The one place we certainly don't want to see it, and in enemies. Mm-hmm. Which is why Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Mm -hmm. That's total seeing. That's 360 seeing. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, but you see it every love and suffering. Love and suffering, yeah. And Mm -hmm. and so that's, you've said elsewhere, previous books, that uh, all great spiritual traditions say that the way of change happens or transformation happens through love or suffering. Great love and great suffering. Not living on the surface of either of those. I'm not encouraging great suffering in your life, but. It will happen. Yeah. Just old age. If, I mean, every month now I find a new thing failing on my body. Well, you told me just <laughs> before we started recording that I look older than the last time I was here. You so do. You, you but can, I, I don't, I, so I feel like that's a small suffering that I've experienced. You, you see the suffering that I'm wearing. So thank you for, for saying that. Uh, no, you still I, look fine. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, okay, so we're, we're seeing God in everything. So God's obviously in creation. And so you you dedicate the book uh, to your beloved dog Venus, who actually was 
She she was uh, Venus was with us during the last time we recorded. Oh yeah, this, her water bowl's still here. She used to sit right here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so you dedicate the book to to this mm-hmm. wonderful dog. You you describe uh, in the book about how you see God, uh, even it, not just I say even and not in a pejorative sense, but it, what some look like oh that's that's a pet, mm-hmm. but it's but if you see God everywhere, no door is just a door, and no animal yeah. is just a pet. Whatever elicits the flow of life and love for you at that moment is Christ for you. I don't care what. Say that again. Whatever elicits from you the flow of love Mm -hmm. is operating at that moment as Christ for you. If it's a flower, if it's a tree, if it's a child, if it's an old person who's suffering, that is at that moment creating the relationship in which the Trinitarian life flows. Mm. I hope that doesn't sound too theological, but the object of what draws it forth from you is not as important as the fact that it is drawn forth. That you are... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you get it? Yeah, no, get great. It, yeah. Thank you. And um, Well, you, you tie love and forgiveness together. Well, very so good. In, in the Lord's You're Prayer... You're a good student. Go ahead. I, well, the book is right in front of me. Like I can read it. But forgiveness flows to us and through us. To so, us and through us. And so, and you talk about forgiveness as an act of love. And yeah. obviously scripture calls God is love. So anything that's love, anytime you tap into love, you're tapping into, dare I say, the divine dance, which would be yes, the title for Yes, that's it. And, and so whatever elicits that, when you tap into love, you're saying you're, you're tapping into... Into the life of God, you yeah. know? God is life energy. And you, both you, your young man still, but you're smart enough, you could be around a person for five minutes and you know if it's life energy or death energy. Mm-hmm. You really do. <laughs> it's not that hard to tell who's in heaven and who's in hell. Now, I'm not talking about the final <laughs> state of hell, but uh, that a lot of people are choosing death energy constantly yeah. to fight you, to resist you, to resent you. Um it's not. It's so common sense that it's hard to teach. Yeah, it really is. Mm. Now I think our whole life is a refining of that sensibility, and that's why most of you are called to marriage, like you are, Luke. You know that um, there has to almost be one person who keeps refining you, because <laughs> they say your marriage partner just in effect keeps telling you every day you still don't know how to love. You, and you're saying that to her, too. You know, it's not just she to you. Uh, I, I do believe partnership is the safest path to ongoing transformation because you have a constant mirror there. Mm-hmm. I talk about the mirror a lot in the book. And, like, I'm taking a dangerous path, you know, I can sort of choose my mirrors. Here you two are coming today and mirroring me very kindly. But if I wouldn't want to be around you, I wouldn't have to. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you even more as a father, as much as you love those three girls, they're going to ask a lot of you Mm -hmm. (laughs) your whole life. So it's the best path to be a parent and to be a, a, a partner. Well, you've stepped on my toes enough. I'm going to let Jason ask a question because <laughs> when you describe love refining me or uh, the partner refining me because it says I don't love well, 
Uh, I was a uh, jackass this morning, so uh, I'm gonna just. <laughs> I noticed that for your a while. face sort of blanched. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I don't want to talk about that right now. A little too personal right now. Uh, so, Jay, would you please distract me from my own conviction? <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if I want to enable that. <laughs> um, Richard, I was thinking while I was reading the book about how, um, like, a lot of what purports to be gospel preaching is really declaring the scarcity of God. And Absolutely. Then, and then telling you, like, we have a monopoly, we have the one sort of authorized channel, right? So, wow, you say it well. Thank you. Go ahead, go ahead. So I'm wondering <laughs> um, if the message is really the rampant availability of God. I'm rampant availability. Isn't that good? Do you write? You should. <laughs> Notre Dame did that for you. That, <laughs> that good Catholic school. <laughs> really um, so um, I'm wondering, um, in, in the framework that you're putting out here, um, what does evangelism look like to you? You mean ideally? Yeah. It, if, if this is the framework, and then within that framework, the, what you're articulating with the universal Christ, how would you describe a meaningful evangelism in that framework? Is, is there such a thing? Yes, but it can't start with being verbal. Verbal localizes you in your head Mm -hmm. and in the left side of your head. Uh, It becomes a control tower. Mm -hmm. And that was perhaps the Achilles heel of a lot of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. It thought you could talk people into love. Mm -hmm. You could talk people into surrender. You could talk people into a love of truth even. You know, I remember. Hey, Jensen, you're talking to two preachers. <laughs> <laughs> no, we still listen. I've done it my whole life, so I'm talking to myself too. Uh, we we have to have preachers. We have to have people who verbalize it. But unless they're verbalizing experience, uh, and that experience rings true in other people's heart and mind, it doesn't go deep and it doesn't go far. You know, the example I used for years, and it's true, I was preaching in Austria, and there was this beautiful, verdant uh, valley in Austria where there was a big monastery that had been there since the 10th century, still occupied. It was Irish monks who came over and evangelized the Austrians. And uh, they said we were all pagan in this whole area. They never preached to us. They just came... This story has been passed down. Built this architecturally magnificent building. Inside of it, they live an ordered, loving life. They chanted Gregorian music, Gregorian chants as we called it. They protected the land. You know, every monastery was surrounded by thousands of acres of land. The monks were farmer monks, really. They were at labora, work and prayer, work and prayer. That was their whole life. And they said, after a hundred years of that, the whole valley was Catholic, uh, Christian. Uh, uh, It was a different approach to evangelization. Uh, It wasn't verbal. It was lifestyle. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Live a lifestyle that's not oriented toward war, not oriented toward money. Those became the three vows, you know, poverty, chastity. Well, forget about chastity right now. We Obviously, we haven't done that one very well. But the other ones were an attempt to form an ordered society. Then what is the function of 
what us preachers do every week. If it's not, we, we can't convince people with words, then, then what do you think the goal of what we're doing is? If you're naming their inner experience correctly, Remember that line you've heard me quote a lot from First John, second chapter. I think uh, I got to be careful and quote the right chapter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do not preach to you because you do not know the truth. Mm. I preach to you because you already know it. And you've heard me say that the best compliment I get is exactly that. I got it twice this month. People said, you say things so different. And at first I'm scared of you, but if I stop my resistance, you're not telling me anything that I don't already know. That's the best compliment I can get. When you're affirming people's deepest inner experience. You read the the frontispiece at the beginning from Karl Rahner. He was a German Jesuit one of my heroes, the only really absolute mysteries in Christianity are the self-communication of God in the depths of existence. Now, see, forgive me, Protestantism has been very weak on that. Mm -hmm. It's all outer decisions for Christ. And and I know you meant well, but we just got to see the kind of politics and the kind of society it created. Very self-centered, very, you know, the, the self-communication of God in the depths of existence, which we call grace, and in history, which we call Christ. I had to put that right at the beginning of the book. That's the summary of the whole book, you know? Yeah. Uh, now, when you, as a, in fact, I don't think you have the gift of preaching till you can use the Scripture and the tradition in a way that tugs at people down here. That, that is true. I can't deny it. You know what I mean? It's probably why people like Brene Brown have more success than a lot of us preachers do. You know? Have you read her? Uh, not extensively. Uh-huh. What do you think, why, do you, why do you think she connects so well? You know, this whole thing of shame. I don't think there's a human being on this earth who doesn't have parts of themselves they're really ashamed of. They hope nobody sees, nobody knows. Yeah. It's just universal. And my, one of my critiques of organized religion is we played into that. And we preachers became the teachers of shame. We called them fire and brimstone sermons. Not announcing to people they were created in the, in the image and likeness of God, but you're gambling and you're dancing. <laughs> things that weren't even, you know, yeah. the essence of evil or even close to evil. They were just cultural Things that we didn't like. Mm-hmm. So we, we missed... Uh, I mean, the evil that is destroying this planet right now are not the evils that preachers have emphasized, Catholic or Protestant. You understand? You, you talk about that some of the book. Do where, I? Where, hope so. where Paul references... Oh, yeah. Uh, where you talk about Paul and, and sin, and, and you make the observation that Jesus doesn't talk about like those kind of things that, that you just mentioned as much as... Uh, it's bigger stuff, and you reference the the Pauline language about uh, our our battles not against flesh and blood, but yeah, against the powers, and prin- yeah, the, yeah, the, yes. the powers and principalities. And so, if we look at if like this big picture of first incarnation, God creates the world, uh, Christ is in everything, and that 
in the person of Jesus. You know, let's even say it better. Okay. I'm not correcting you, but let's You're try. one. You're going to uh, reform. <laughs> You're know, one. Everything is in Christ. Say it that way. What's the difference? I'm making Christ the primary fundamentum of reality, the coherence yeah, of yeah. matter and spirit. And you, and like when I talk about the incarnation, I say it would be better at Christmas if we didn't sing about Jesus coming into the world, but Jesus coming out of the world that's already soaked with Christ. Uh, it's, it might sound like you're playing with prepositions, but once you can say that, those two, you've got it. You've got what I'm saying. Yeah. The Christ is already been with us for since time began. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.